You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library and our Writers Live series. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of this beautiful department. And this evening, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Monica A. Coleman. Throughout her life, through high school, college, seminary, and graduate school, Monica A. Coleman always excelled. But beneath her success, was a deep sadness. She tried to keep hidden, a grief that seemed to run through her entire family. In her new book, Bipolar Faith, A Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith, Coleman, a professor at Claremont School of Theology, talks about her struggles with mental illness and her path to recovery. She calls the book a memoir of mental illness, a spiritual autobiography and a coming-of-age story. Coleman teaches theology and African-American religions at Claremont, where she is the school, school's first African-American woman to be appointed full professor. She has an A.B. from Harvard Radcliffe, an M.D.I.V. divinity from v- Vanderbilt University, and an M.A. and Ph.D. from Claremont. She is an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and a sought-after speaker and preacher. She has been featured as an expert in religion and mental health on NPR, beliefnet.com, psychcentral.com, and Huffington Post Live. She blogs on faith and depression at www.beautifulmindblog.com. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Monica A. Coleman. Good evening. It is such a joy to be in Baltimore. If you've read some of the book, you have a sense that the D.C. Baltimore area is a second home for me, since this is the area where a good deal of my family are. And so it is a joy to be here. The Enoch Pratt Library is such a famous place to be. And so I am honored and humbled to be here. And I just want to do, you know, if I were in a pulpit, I'd call them Holy Ghost shout-outs. But in a library, i just say, I would like to acknowledge um, the wonderful work of uh, Sister Vivian Fisher, thank you for this wonderful introduction. Teresa Edmonds, who did so much um, to make this happen, working with Helena Brantley, who's not here, but is my publicist, who does all this work while I keep working, <laughs> and is amazing. To the people of NAMI Baltimore, are they inside, outside? Right there. They have pamphlets outside. Grab them as you go because you will need them or you'll know someone who will need them. And so you should grab them. They are one of the best organizations in the country, I think, for really helping to educate and um, advocate for people who live with mental health challenges. And especially, I think they're especially supportive for people who love people who live with mental health challenges. Their family-to-family program can't be beat. Um, Also to the Black Mental Health uh, um, Alliance right out here. Yes? 
Mental Health Association? Alliance. I had, a, I had it right. Yes, the Black Mental Health Alliance for Education and Consultation, who work, I remember, if I remember correctly, specifically and primarily with mental health providers, correct? Um, and which is so important because we're going to talk a lot about the intersection of culture and mental health and having culturally competent and educated um, mental health providers makes such a huge difference in transformation of the soul and of society. And so I'm really glad they're here. Grab their material on your way out. You'll also see, this is all my prolegomena, um, bookmarks, which are free. Just grab one. It says, A Faith That Liberates. You can grab one on the way out the door. But if you have a bookmark and don't have a book, well, what's that about? So you can also get a book <laughs> right here <laughs> for the uh, low, low price of, um, yeah, really below uh, sticker price because you're here tonight. And I also would love to sign it for you. So, uh, and, oh, I want to thank my Aunt Maxine. Can you wave your hand? Who is... Um, you know, my real first publicist <laughs> and uh, local to Baltimore. And if you've read the book, you'll see her in it. And then if you see someone who looks a lot like her sitting next to her, that's my mom, Pauline, uh, who I don't usually have in the audience when I speak. So I'm really glad that they're both here. And if you hear a little kid running around, yep, that's mine too. But she'll be running around the kids section. So I thank you all for coming. And I really just want to share... Um, from two parts of the book and have a brief, I'll call it a meditation, <laughs> on um, where I see the intersections of faith and culture and mental health, and then we can have a conversation and take questions. Is that cool? Great. Uh, I want to read from two sections, and if you, we have time, I can actually do three. And I want to read in particular from... Um, this is day 25. So right before this section, as I mentioned, I have this kind of lifelong struggle with a mental health challenge that isn't accurately diagnosed until my late, late 20s. Um, at this point, my early 20s, I'm about 21, and as I tell the, the story kind of of my life, of growing up, the kind of coming of age part, um, I also share all the other experiences that happened to me on the way, some of which include being called to be a minister, deciding to go to divinity school, trying to figure all that out, um, being in school, moving around the country, interacting with family. And it also includes the experience of um, be becoming a survivor of rape or being raped and being, being a survivor of rape and trying to figure out my faith and my mental health in the midst of that kind of trauma. So I'm going to read from... Um, what I call day 25. So in the book, I, wanted, I really wanted to try to convey what it felt like to, um, to live through and to survive what those immediate days are like after um, experiencing that level of intimate violence. And so I'm also a grad student, right? So I have to do homework. And so this is me trying to balance my homework and um, my own internal struggle. God answered the prayers I could not pray in the middle of the library. I was determined to finish out the semester without completely flattening my GPA. I took a stack of books and papers to the library and told myself I could not go home until I got something done. I tuned my disc man to a local college radio station and settled in with my research. I tuned the music and chattered to the back of my mind as I flipped through book after book looking for quotations to support my argument. And then I heard the radio announcer 
read from the 8th and 14th chapters of the biblical book of Jeremiah. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. You shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter, my people, is struck down with a crushing blow, with a very grievous wound. I heard these words as if for the first time. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for my daughter is struck down with a crushing blow, with a very grievous wound. For the first time it occurred to me, God cried when I cried. I heard God saying to me, don't you know that I cry when you cry? When you lament, I lament. It hurts me when it hurts you. I'm hurt that this thing happened to you. I'm hurt that Peter did that to you. I'm hurt by what he said in my name. I really am right here with you. This wasn't the God I was mad at. It wasn't the God I was taught. This wasn't the God who parted the Red Sea but ignored my pleas. It wasn't the God I asked to make Peter stop. This was some new God. This was a God that said to me, I'm not ignoring you. In fact, I hurt with you. I'm right here, and I'm pretty undone, too. The radio program seemed to end as quickly as it entered my consciousness, but it left an imprint on my needy soul. I burst into tears right in the middle of the library. I pushed my books and papers to the side, placed my hands in front of my face, and sobbed with no regard for how much noise I made or how much attention I drew to myself. Maybe, just maybe, God cared about me after all. As far as most of my friends knew, I overreacted to a fight with an ex-boyfriend. They had no idea what was happening. They didn't know that I was faking my ministry. They didn't know I was losing my ability to really talk to the God that made me want to be a minister. And that was my first glimpse of the only God I could believe in. Um, the next passage I want to read, um, it's from the end, but it refers to the beginning. So it's, it's, not, um, I'm not, it's not a giveaway because it's on the book jacket to tell you how the book opens. And it opens with a story of my great-grandfather who committed suicide. But my family told the story by saying he died of grief. And so I don't know until I'm much older, my 20s, that he committed suicide. What I thought was that um, you could get so sad that your heart would shrivel up, kind of like the Grinch, and you would die. I, and, you know, because I saw the Grinch, that's how I pictured it. <laughs> like, you know, that his wife died, and six months later, he was so sad that he died. And that was how I understood it until I began to find out more about the story. And that was that he hung himself, and he um, had my great-uncle, his son, help him to do that. And um, they were sharecroppers. 
And so they are just one beat, I would say, out of slavery because then my grandmother and her siblings were raised by a former slave who was a family friend. Sharecropping occupies the space between fate and freedom. It's better than slavery. No overseers, whips, or gang labor. No forced rapes or breeding for children. But it's not freedom either. Picking cotton from can't see to can't see for a wage you never get. Being tied to land you know, land you work, a land that knows the prints of your feet and the crevices in your knuckles. Owned by someone else, the land owns you. Sharecropping means owing a debt you can only repay by the next year's labor and the year after forever. Sharecroppers often lived in conditions only slightly better than when they were slaves. Getting out requires working more than is sane. Finding enough cotton or some loophole or a way out in the middle of the night. It is a life that is not your own. No longer slaves, but not yet free. It could drive anyone into madness. I should not have been surprised that my sharecropping great-grandfather killed himself. It's a wonder that more sharecroppers did not. You need to know about the noose, Teresa called me with urgency in her voice. You need to know what I found out about great-granddaddy. Teresa had been visiting one of our older cousins when the stories of our great-grandfather's suicide was revealed. He planned it, she said. He was teaching Uncle Robert how to tie knots for some period of time. Weeks, probably. As if they were going camping, I asked, projecting my contemporary sensibilities into the 1920s South. I don't know what he told Uncle Robert, but there's more. He had Uncle May D lift him up. Uncle May D was 12 then. He had to understand what was going on. Great Granddaddy told him to come back the next day to make sure he was dead. I was stuck between silence and screaming. Who does that? Who gets their children to help them? Who puts their kids in that position? Who teaches their kids to help them kill themselves? Teresa continued. Everyone seems to know, I mean all the cousins from down south. When I ask, they tell me. It's not like it's a secret. There's a long pause on the phone. I move from bustling around the kitchen to a slump on my futon. I had more questions than I shared with Teresa. Why didn't anyone say anything about this? Didn't they think that this was an important part of our family history? Why were they so nonchalant about it? Maybe they were ashamed. Maybe they thought suicide was a sin. A lot of Christianity teaches that. Maybe they thought it was better if no one talked about it, as if giving it voice would give it power, would make it more real, would make them hate an ancestor they didn't even know. Teresa broke the silence. This, she sighed, is our family. Our cousins knew this. Did these cousins, an easy 10 to 15 years older than Mama and Aunt Maxine, know what to do with this story? Did they know that they should pass this on along with the stories of Uncle Sam, the former slave who raised their parents? Did they know that they shouldn't hide the bad memories? Did they know that we, Teresa and I and our cousins in this generation needed them? That we needed to know who we were and where we came from? Did they have an idea that this was part of our medical history? It was as pertinent as knowing that our people tended to die of diabetes and heart disease? This story was just as complex as any other disease, some savvy combination of genetics and diet. 
passed down the generations like hair texture and the recipe for sweet potato pie. It was shared quietly and with intention. It was in our family's stresses, seemingly harmless lies, the silences in the face of pained circumstances. It was in our poverties and our strivings. They needed to tell the children, and not like a fact, but like a harsh warning. Don't get too close to the fire, you will be burned. Don't start drinking, you might not be able to stop. Watch out for the things that go bump in the night. Thank you. I'll find a happy story in the end. <laughs> uh, I shared these two pieces because I think they're two that uh, encompass a bit of what happens in the book. Um, I had originally thought of uh, one of my titles, subtitles for the book that got kicked out when you have these conversations with publishers, was that I saw the book a lot about losing faith and finding faith again. Um, because that happens over and over in the story. And that so often as people of faith, we're taught that be having strong faith and being a good person of faith means having this great, steady, unwavering faith, right? If you come from a Christian tradition, you hear about having this faith that's like a mustard seed that can move mountains. And mustard seeds aren't that big, if you've seen one, right? Even if you haven't, you're told it's small. And you're not moving any mountains. And so you must be thinking then, well, I must not have enough faith. I must not be praying right or saying something right or believing right. right. These are things one would think when you can't move the mountain that's in your life. And I wanted to say, like, oh, that's just a lot of crock, people. That's not what it's like. <laughs> in real life, you lose your faith. You, you have doubts. Some of the greatest theologians in um, Western history talk about doubt being a part of faith, that doubting means that you take your faith seriously enough to doubt it. And then, in fact, doubt is an indication of strong faith. That's Paul Tillich, if you're theology heads, who says this in a wonderful book called Dynamics of Faith. Um, but I wanted to say that, you know, I, every time these things would happen, I would kind of lose my faith. But I would find it again as well. And so I would say, oh, I, I don't think I can believe in this thing I've been taught. And I would find something else, or something else would find me. There would be these new ways of experiencing God and of finding faith um, just by staying in the journey, just by staying the course. And so part of it I wanted to say is they kind of seem to go together for me, right? Because I think that with every kind of, for me, they were depressive episodes, but mental health episodes, um, I would lose something. Sometimes a lot of stuff. I mean, you lose sleep, right? Um, you lose smaller things uh, or daily things. But I felt like I would lose something major. I'd lose a part of myself. I'd lose a part of my faith. And so part of this was saying, ah, but it can be found again. That's not necessarily the end of the story. And I wanted to talk about culture because I wanted to give a more complex narrative than what I call the standard narrative of mental health challenges. So the standard narrative, this is if you watch those commercials on TV where somebody is like painted in gray and black and white and they're feeling really bad and then within 30 seconds the lights come on and they're romping through the fields because they've taken this medication and it's all better now. And then they have this like long series of things that can go wrong when you take the medication, right? Right? And, and these are things of late, meaning like there were no commercials like that when I was a child. So I would say the last 10, 20 years, you have these kind of commercials. And I am not anti-medication, but I am anti, like, it all gets solved in 30 seconds, right? 
Um, no, it doesn't, as many of us would well know. And But there's this kind of idea that some people have this chemical imbalance, and nobody really knows why, because it's the brain, and the brain is complicated, and we don't really understand the brain. But there is a chemical imbalance, and if you take medication, um, and maybe some therapy involved in there, then you will get better, and you will be well. And I actually don't say that's wrong, but what I want to say is that it's so much more complicated than that. Um, that there's so much that goes on with how any of us get to the challenging places we get to, and that there are these combinations of poverty and war and and um, oppression, Jim Crowism, right, um, and trauma, and perhaps then chemical imbalances and fear, right? All of these things that shape our experience. Well, how could somebody be okay if they grow up seeing their friends lynched? How could somebody be okay when they're coming back from war, right? How could somebody be okay when every day they're wondering if their kids have enough food to eat? Yeah, you're going to be fine. No. And then thinking of your mental health feels like a luxury when you're in a survival mode. And for so many of us, this is part of our stories, part of our culture, and I say part of American stories, right? These are usually these larger social issues that created all throughout society that were all living in and responding to and inheriting. And so it's really complicated how we get there, and so it's complicated how we get well. And I am an advocate of medication if it's important and if it's needful and if it helps to save your life because being alive is an excellent thing. And I'm an advocate of therapy um, and of talk therapy and of really good therapists, not the bad therapists, but the good therapists, right? <laughs> um, but we also know there's so much associated with class and access to health care and then access to the good people in that system that make it so difficult. And so there are great advocacy organizations that do work in trying to help break down those barriers and help to fight for laws that make things better, but that still doesn't say what happens to your life and your faith. And so I wanted to talk about the ways in which we also construct our healing through our networks and through our friends and through rituals and through faith and through culture and how we begin to rebuild, we can begin to rebuild these, cells, these things for ourselves and hopefully for generations to come. And so that was another reason why I wrote the book and why I wanted to share the section about sharecropping because this was not a language that my family had to talk, not two, three generations ago, to use words like clinical depression. <laughs> I mean, we all knew what suicide was, but those weren't terms they would have used. So they weren't terms they could pass on to us. So they said it like they felt it. They said, he died of grief. And so there are things that we talk about grief, being grievous. And I don't talk about this in the book, but I think, um, this is now my two cents, um, that part of the challenge is in understanding what we live with um, some of us who live with depressive conditions and mental health challenges is because of how a larger system measures them, right? So are there any mental health professionals in the audience? A couple? Yes. Yay. Everyone, find them. Go talk to them if you need one. Um, but um, as you know, there, there's this thing called the DSM-X. Now it's five, I believe. And, but it was four and three before that, right? And they have this list of what you can and can't do. And if you can't do a certain number of things, then you might be depressed, right? Or you might have X. And so I think they measured things by functionality, which is one way of looking at things. But if you are one of those people, um, like many of us, where if you miss a paycheck, bad things happen, 
<laughs> people don't eat, you don't have anywhere to live, living inside is good. If you miss two paychecks, you're really going to have a problem, right? I mean, the majority of the country, <laughs> right, needs every paycheck to do their life, right? And so when you think about, well, can you get up and go to work? Well, somebody has to get up and go to work. It's going to be me, right, in order for everyone to be okay, for my children to be okay, for me to be okay. And so if you're looking at what can someone do, Sometimes it doesn't tell you how they feel. And so I think I'm also, this is like my other side part, right? I happen to be what doctors have called a high-functioning person with a depressive condition. I'll take it. Um, and trust me, there are downsides to that because they don't believe me when I tell them I feel sad. They go, oh, but you look fine. Oh, but I'm not. Right? So <laughs> um, there are challenges on each side <laughs> of it. But I think when we focus so much on functionality, we miss Right, particularly those in African American communities who who have grown up with this idea or this trope of being a strong woman or a strong black woman, or you have to get up and do things, and so just because you're functioning doesn't mean that you're okay. And so having to find these other ways of see, of checking in and making sure we're okay, and checking in with ourselves and our families and our communities of care and concern, and in knowing that in the midst of all this, that even when no one else understands what we feel and think, that God does. So I want to read from one last section that's a little happier. There are happier sections. Um, and then um, take questions and answers. Cool? Yes? Okay, cool. I didn't put a bookmark here, so give me one second. Now I have a table of contents like everyone else. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is a fun one. Okay, so this section I want to share from. Um, I am still living in Nashville at this part. And this is just about, let's see. Two, two and a half years after the first section I read, and I'm still kind of piecing my life back together. But I did finish school. This is good. I graduated. Um, and I decide to take some dance classes. So I want to share a bit about that. And of course, I do this because I meet this really cute guy who invites me. Because, well, you know. <laughs> So it turned out we were on the same listserv, this is what kind of precedes the section, and we email each other from the listserv, and then it's like, hey, we realized we actually had seen each other in a club before, this little poetry, kind of Love Jones-style poetry club, um, mobile poetry club. I'm like, hey, I'd seen you there before. And so there I'm like, oh, here's this guy. Um, so I was drawn to this deep brown man with long dreadlocks, silver hoops in his eyebrows and ears, and eyes the color of Godiva dark chocolate cherry cordials when you lick them before you bite in. <laughs> Just saying. He liked books. He liked music. We began to talk. We began to date. He was a drummer. He drummed through high school and college and in Nashville at The Village. You should come by The Village and dance sometime. The Village was Nashville's African-centered cultural arts center. They offered an after-school program and summer camp for children, but they are best known for the drum and dance classes. Housed in a bright yellow renovated warehouse, the dance floor occupied most of the space. 
the shop with jewelry, the waiting area, the women's locker room, and carpeted border altogether took up less than one-eighth of the space. You could rarely enter the village without hearing the sound of drums and seeing women, children, or men dancing. The village drum and dance ensemble danced around the community at street fairs, art shows, schools, and cultural festivals. So, uh, the lead drummer at the village also played drums at my church. He told me to come by sometime, take classes. I kept saying I couldn't afford it, graduate student budget and all. After graduating, I said, well, you know, I work nonprofit, right? On a budget. Outside of the party and club scene, I never danced. Doing the running man, cabbage patch, kid and play, or even bankhead bounce to a DJ is different from ballet, jazz, or tap. That was real dancing. West African dance looked tremendously difficult. Don't worry about the money, he yelled back each week as I scooted out the door of the church. But at Corey's invitation, I drove to the village one weekday evening for dance class. The first few times I went to dance class, I was quiet and shy. I didn't know the other class members who seemed unified in friendship and dance. I stumbled across the floor and hobbled back in line, tired and exhausted. When I was close to the drummers, Corey said snidely, struggling? I was struggling. I thought of myself as being in good shape, but dancing was more intense than running or lifting weights. It was over an hour of intense cardiovascular activity. I started going to the gym just so I could be in shape for dance class. Still, I struggled. That, da, 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 da. This was becoming a familiar sound. It's the sound of a break. When the drummers play that sound, the drum beat changes, the movement of the dance changes. Listen to the drums, the instructor said. Don't just count the beat, listen to the drums. Start after the break, change on the break. I don't hear the break. I can't remember the movements, I told the instructor. You will, she reassured me. Just stick with it. Almost two months into dance class and Corey stopped teasing me. One evening before class, Corey leaned over to me while moving his drum from its bag. Monica, you are trying too hard. Stop trying so hard. You know the steps, just feel it. I tripped down the floor once again. Just feel it, he mouthed from the end of the dance floor. Just feel it. I stopped thinking about putting my right foot first and arching my arm. I stopped thinking about a straight back and the direction in which to rotate my hips. I let the motions take over my body. Arm curved up to the right. Arm curved up, moving across my body to the left. Back and head, then down. Head and back up. Do it again. Arm curved right leads me into a circle. Left arm led me to turn the other way. Dance forward my shoulder leaning. Shoulder leaning. My body did the motions. Dot, da, dot, dot, da, dot, dot, dot. I felt it. Before I knew it, I was on the other end of the dance floor. The women in the class rushed me. They clapped and hugged me. You got it, sister. You got it. I smiled. I was part of the group. Twice a week, I was at the village to dance. I put all my stress and energy into the movements, into my feet and legs and arms and back and head, and back into the world. Dot, 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 dot. I danced toward Corey's drum. Unlike dancing to a DJ, this dance meant something. This meant something to the people who originally danced them. I'm going to skip ahead for a moment. At the village, the dance instructors told us the stories of the dance and taught us the songs that accompany each dance. We sang in a call and response. Cuckoo, the dance of the harvest. 
The motion symbolized planting the seeds, picking the crops, giving thanks to the creator for the harvest. Durumba, the dance of the warrior, a strong, heavy dance with stomping and raised arms. Ekonkon, another harvest dance. And Majiani, a rite of passage dance for girls. They taught us to recognize the dance by the beat of the drum. Listen, they admonished. The drum will tell you everything. It will tell you what dance, when to start, when to change, when to finish. Listen to the drum. I danced. I danced with other women for hours every week. We danced the harvest, the fast, strong rhythm of the warrior, the praises to earth and ancestors. It wasn't just a workout. We learned the language of the drum and danced the cycles of life. It was hard to allow my non-intellectual senses to guide me. I had to cultivate and rely on my ears, my feet, and my own spirit. I danced ancient rhythms. I danced for the ancestors. I danced the harvest for grandma and her siblings who picked cotton for low wages. I danced the harvest for Nana who taught me how to make biscuits and cakes. I danced the warrior for granddaddy who tried to be strong for his family but didn't know how. I danced for my family ancestors. I danced with them. I was surprised by how much it felt like worship. I adopted the stories of the dance as my own. I knew the labor of working hard. I felt the joy of reaping that reward. I wanted to transition from one phase of life into another. I danced and sang. I danced and prayed. I danced and thanked. I danced and celebrated. My body spoke in ways my voice could not. Thank you for the earth. Thank you for the harvest. Thank you for my sisters. Thank you for the ancestors. Thank you. Thank God. This was where I began to feel God again. After the crying, outside of the Bible and church and even Dina, with sweat running down my face, torso, and arms, with calloused bare feet in a renovated warehouse with African cloths tied around my waist, the dance did for me what years of ministry, church, and Bible reading did not. It returned me to God. It returned me to God the same way I lost God, through my body. My body became my words. The dance became prayer. The chanted songs became scriptures. The drum was a choir. Moving down the dance floor toward the drum, I found faith again. So we have time for questions, right? Great. And conversation, I'd say. Yes, we're going to pass the mic around. Please talk into it because we are podcasting this. Thank you. Good evening. I'm, I'm someone who's personally living with bipolar illness. And in my experience, I have had challenges in the faith community of getting support around that. Mm -hmm. There's been misunderstanding in the church, at least in my church experience, Mm -hmm. of just either rejecting uh, mental illness as Mm -hmm. something that, well, you just need to pray about it Mm -hmm. more, or you have a demon, Um, just, just rejection around that. And I must admit, I haven't read your book yet, but what has your experience been? Yeah, all that. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> you know, churches are still learning, and that's the kindest way to put it, right? <laughs> How to appropriately respond and understand and minister to people with mental health challenges, which is like everybody, right? Um, or people who live with them and lo- people who love them. That's that's your church. That's the people who are in front of you. And um, I, because I get to educate clergy, I actually get the chance to say, stop saying these things you say, right? Um, I have favorites that are horrible, right? Like the, it's a demon, right? Of course, no one says that it's a demon. What they say is, it's a tool the enemy casted out in the name of Jesus. Well, if that worked, I would have done that, right? Um, so there's that. And then we have expressions like, you're too blessed to be stressed, Right? Or um, there's this listing of these sins that occur, and somehow depression is in the sins, but like diabetes or cancer are not, right? So it's not treated the same way that other um, illnesses are treated. And that's a real growing edge for churches. And so um, I often say if I weren't a minister, I probably would have left church a long time ago for so many reasons, <laughs> and so many good reasons um, in terms of being hurt, being hearing ministers say things either personally or from the pulpit that left me feeling ostracized, lonelier, worse than when I went in. Um, But there are great churches out there, too. And I think there are a good number of churches of people with the right heart and don't know what to say or don't even think through the implications of what they're saying. They're just saying what they've heard. Um, so yes, I've heard those things and it is incredibly painful, right? Because you don't feel like this is a place where you can be you, where you can talk about and share about what's actually happening and going on with you and let alone work out your spirituality, um, in the real life that you have. And so I definitely know that experience in the book I talk about, it's, um, somewhat in the context of living with tra- the trauma of being a survivor of rape, but it could be in any case where I'm like, that's not going to work. Next church, that's not going to work. And I keep going to these different churches uh, until I end up at this great church where the pastor says, well, I won't give it away, but the pastor says these wonderful words. Um, and I'm like, ah, this is where I'm supposed to be. And this is a church that understands human beings, right? And people who are in pain and people who are growing and doesn't expect these amazing mountain-moving, mustard-seed-faith things of us, but just to be us. Um, And so those churches do exist, but I think there's still a lot of education, and I get to do some of that, and there are other people out there trying to teach churches and faith leaders how to have more appropriate responses, right, to... um, to mental health challenges. And the best one is to treat it like you treat every other illness, right? You know, you just make sure someone has a doctor and go to the hospital and pray with them. I mean, that's what we tend to do, right? Lift people up in prayer. Understand that praying doesn't make stuff automatically go away or doesn't make stuff automatically heal, but it does make us feel more confident and stronger and connected to the source of life. Um. Thank you, first of all, for coming here and talking and sharing your personal story. Thank you. Um, I have discovered that I am a trauma survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, childhood emotional neglect mm-hmm. is the trauma source. But what has um, really been um, a, a huge hurdle for me was a denial, mm-hmm. almost of recognizing um, my vulnerabilities, my inappropriate actions, my <laughs> irrational behavior. <laughs> and um, I think that that's, uh, in my own study, it's, it 
I guess, a defensive mechanism, and also probably the shame that was poured upon me. Mm -hmm. Is that your experience as well, and is that also a barrier to all of our health, public, our mental health? Um, I would say in some ways yes and yes. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, everyone's trauma is different depending on what caused it, I think, and also one's response to it. But, you know, people who do trauma theory say, but there are these things that are very common to those in trauma. Um, the way I usually say it more colloquially is the things we did to survive, right, were exactly what we had to do to survive. And once we're out of that death-dealing situation, most of us continue on in those same behaviors, which are there, which then become self-destructive, right? Um, and this is my, you know, just therapy but not psychology self <laughs> saying this. And so it then becomes a challenge to unlearn, right, those things that, um, we needed and that we that our wonderful amazing brains and creators gave us to live through difficult situations and then to say but I'm not in that situation anymore because you know you don't your intellectual brain may know that right but doesn't mean your emotions and your heart and your subconscious know that and to begin to say oh but I don't have to live in fear I don't have to feel as if I'm unsafe because I'm not anymore if indeed you aren't Sometimes you actually might still be. And to learn these new ways of getting, a, of operating, right? Of thinking, of acting. And this is where I find therapy so helpful because therapists are very good at being like, don't do that anymore, do this, right? <laughs> and of being able to help you find what the right skills and techniques, right, are for you um, to do that. But I do think it's a very common experience. And I think that there's so many more people who have that experience than know it themselves, or even than we acknowledge in wider society, right? Um, so even for those of us who don't live with these diagnosed, named clinical conditions, right, so many of us are still living with the effects of, of fear and abuse and of poverty and of war, right, that we're, we're still operating from these places that then becomes a challenge to our mental well-being. Good evening. Um, surviving with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, things that you said about being a strong black woman and pushing through it or mm -hmm. praying through it, there's such a stigma attached to um, talking about our emotional health. Mm -hmm. um, even when people talk to me about you know, mm -hmm. the accident I was involved in and how are you, mm -hmm. the physical injuries are healing. And that's, that's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. So because there's no physical sign, mm -hmm. everything must be okay. Right. Um, even I, when, mm -hmm. I, when people talk to me, I, mm -hmm. I notice myself saying, I, I'm, I'm coming along with you know, my leg and this piece and that piece. Mm -hmm. um, when I am brave, I say, and the emotional piece is coming along too. Mm -hmm. But so often, I don't right. because of the stigma attached to it mm -hmm. and what does that mean and people's mm -hmm. low tolerance mm -hmm. of that yeah. and, and because they don't know what to say right. afterwards. So I just, I think that one of the big things is what's accepted mm -hmm. in our society from us in terms of emotional health and and it just not being a part of the conversation still so widely. 
No, I agree. I mean, there's. I mean, when people are afraid of stigma, they're not being paranoid. There is stigma, right? You know, um, and you know, I was. I had a place employment, not where I work now, but a place where I worked where um, I had a colleague who was often kind of trying to challenge the system of how things worked, and from and usually in very good and healthy ways. Like, well, what about this? Or have you thought about that? Or shouldn't we be advocating for people who don't have a voice? And um, I would hear other people talking about my colleague saying, well, you know that person's bipolar. I'm like, what's that got to do with the fact that the system needs to be challenged sometimes, right? And so I'm like, well, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> if this is how they're talking about somebody else, right? Uh, and trying to dismiss, right, where somebody's coming from or their efforts they're making. And this is so typical, Right, and these are the people who said it out loud with no shame to the stigma, right? Let alone the people who think it, right? But and then make decisions based on those ideas without ever saying it out loud. And so I think there there is very much so um, still a stigma, you know, still the fear of judgment, and for particularly for those of us, um, you know, who may feel like you're in a marginalized or minority position in your job or in the workplace or um, in some aspect of society, and you were raised perhaps like I was, that you had to do twice as much to get half as much acknowledgement, right? you like, don't let them see you sweat. Fake it till you make it, right? You don't want someone to see this chink in your armor, right? Because it was hard enough to get here anyway, or I'm the only one, or what would they think of all the other black women, right, who come along after me if they can see that I'm human, <laughs> And so I know for me it took me a long time to say, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm actually a human being, and that's okay. You know, that God made me a human being, which means that we're not perfect, right? <laughs> right, and so when the expectation, and then you kind of take it on yourself, right, because then you want to live into, right, what it is. And so I think it begins with the people closest to you. Yeah, we can't make the whole world happy. But, you know, we can't even be honest with the whole world. They don't even care, right? But it, I talk about in the book how my friends had to tell me, let us be your friends. Like, you care about us, let us care about you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> because I'm so busy trying to be even strong among them. And, of course, it's seeking out through all the leaks and the cracks. And I'm the only one who actually thinks I'm hiding something. <laughs> and so, you know, to be honest with those who are close to me who actually do care about my well-being. So, no, I'm not honest with the whole world. Well, I guess I am now. But I generally... <laughs> Right, generally not. <laughs> but with those who were closer and who actually cared about me, and they say how you're doing, they really did want to know. And so I would say how I'm doing, and then I would say, you don't have to say anything back if you don't want to. Right, you know, tell them what would be helpful to say or do. <laughs> right, so a little education along with your sharing. Um, say, or if it's, you know, let me know if there's, if there's something I can do for you. You know, actually what I would love would be if you could have do takeout on this night. You know, whatever it is, have this little list in your mind so that people can be helpful in the ways that they can so that it takes some pressure off of the ways in which people can't be helpful and you just have to go through it. If that helps at all. <laughs> sure. Monica, you are refreshing. You <laughs> truly, truly are. I, I'm particularly intrigued by the point that was raised by the gentleman concerning trauma. Mm -hmm. But you know, to be very honest, being a mental health professional, being someone who has been 
um, in therapy, <laughs> dealing with life experiences, and then also knowing that the mental issues that I've dealt with are generational, <laughs> from generation to generation. All of those things combined. But what I wanted to say in, in a form of a comment and then a question to you, Monica, was it is so often necessary where the trauma or where the, the realization that something's not working right, when that takes place, generally it takes place in someone who's quite young, probably in childhood or adolescence. And in addressing that, and coming to the acknowledgement of it, we call it meeting the child yeah. where the child is. Mm. Oftentimes the healing process begins at meeting you where that point of, oh, realization took place. <laughs> whether you deny the situation or whether, in my case, I kind of developed my own story about it because of the stigma and the trauma about it. So having to meet you where you happen to be is a very important part of the healing process. Monica, my question is, mm -hmm. in any way did you experience that or come to that realization? <laughs> did I meet the child? <laughs> um, I mean, my child. Well, and yes and no. You know, in a way, there wasn't this single moment where things broke or went wrong, right? I mean, this is part of why it took me so long to get an accurate diagnosis. There are a couple reasons for that. One is I kept moving. And so if you don't see a person over time, they don't see you over time <laughs> to notice things. Um, people with bipolar two are often misdiagnosed because we don't think there's anything wrong with our hypomanias. <laughs> We're perfectly happy with our hypomanias and we consider them normal us. And so we usually only get treated for depressions. And so again, it takes someone knowing you over time or asking the right questions and then you being able to show patterns to even kind of get at what's going on. Um, and I kept thinking that I was just responding to challenging events in life, right? My grandmother died. I was close to my grandmother. That made me sad. Um, I actually wasn't sad when my parents divorced, although many young people are, um, or other, you know, or other things that happened. And then it took this therapist saying, well, look, every two and a half years, right? Like this was actually happening fairly cyclically, right? And that would make one person sad would make me in the throes of depression. So it was the level of um, response that I had that kind of indicated more and more where I was. All I have to say is it wasn't like there was this, this moment as a child or as a young person where um, I could kind of say this is where I had to come back and heal myself. Um, what did happen, which I do write about in the book more, is that I had to kind of go back and remember things more the way they were. And so it was a situation where I'd often blame myself um, as an adult for exacerbating my own pain because I didn't share or I didn't tell people what I was going through. And then I had to say, wait a minute, I did. You know, and had to kind of retell the story the way it actually was, which was that I did tell people, and I told them in the way 
that any adolescent would tell someone, right? Maybe through poetry I wrote or through saying this or through saying that. And sometimes they didn't take me seriously. They didn't believe me. I mean, this is all pre-Columbine. There were no, I would tell people there were no counselors in high schools, right? <laughs> Until post-Columbine there were like guidance counselors but not like counselor counselors, right? This is a newer thing, relatively speaking. Um, so I don't think that they even recognized per se, what I was saying, or the people who did, it was, there was so much more interest in um, maintaining a particular image of our family than there was in, like, getting me help. Um, Or there was some interest in getting me help, but then it was not seen as something that was like, wow, we should take this really seriously. It was like, oh, we should do something about this. But even that was a bit of a struggle and a bit of a fight, and you have to read the book to see why. Um, And so for me, it became really revelatory to say, wow, I don't have to feel like it's my fault that no one knew or no one helped me. I did tell them. They just, let's put it in the kindest light, didn't know how to respond. And so that was the child me, I guess, I met. You know, looking back and saying, whoa, you were not someone who kind of kept it a secret all the time, right? You were someone who did tell people as as much as a teenager would. And that was very liberating then for the adult me. The question is um, how, how far back you can go in the memory of when um, looking at your child, looking at finding the child, what things were going on. <laughs> but second, I'd like to say some things first. It, it, in our own society, in the black society and among females, mm-hmm. even though females are nurturing people, they seem to a lot to deny the stigmatism of um, the stigma of bipolar. And things are saying, like, um, I was listening to recovery. Like, you'll recover from this. Um, You'll be well soon. Mm -hmm. Um, Just get over it. Um, Mm -hmm. Take your pills and you'll be able to to be okay, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Did you take your pills today? Uh, I remember when I was young, I remember being at 15, and they were blaming it on my my actions or my period. Mm -hmm. So they gave me naprosins whenever my menstrual cycle began, Mm -hmm. like, that was going to change me. <laughs> right. But my behavior was so erratic that um, on one hand, they were saying, well, you know all this energy she has. Mm-hmm. And then on the other part, the other t- parts of it, mm-hmm. they would say, they called me Evil Lou. Mm-hmm. So, again, nobody, I was telling people, as you said, okay. but they weren't receiving what I was saying correctly. Right. But the question is, how far back can you go? Because I can go back to 13, mm-hmm. when I was 13 years old. Well, it turns out I was an avid journaler. <laughs> so I have these journals from, like, age 9 through my 30s. So people are like, how did you get all this? I'm like, well, I wrote a lot of stuff down. Um, so that helped on some aspects of it. Uh, I'm also willing to admit the, slipper, the slippages that occur in memory, right, that we don't remember things exactly as they occur, but the way we remember them is still very real, right? So um, there's a, a famous um, biblical scholar uh, named John Dominic Crossan, and he is Irish, and but he's lived in the States for most of his older adult life. And he says, this is a story he tells about memory. He says that when I think about being a child, we're driving down the right-hand side of the street, 
well, I'm Irish. We were clearly not driving down the right-hand side of the street. <laughs> we were on the left-hand side of the street. But because I've been here so long, my memory is reconstructing this, right? Um, does that change the validity of whatever it is I remember happening in the car? No. But we weren't on the right-hand side of the street. <laughs> so these are things that kind of happen, right, in our, our memory. The, the, it's not so unusual, right, that... Um, that are, we remember things differently. So I, I have, I remember a lot of stuff from fairly early on. Uh, not my whole life. My mom will show me pictures of my preschool friends, and I don't know who they are. Like, I'm like, I have no recollection of little Jade, right? She was your best friend when you were three. Don't you remember? I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't. But I remember other certain conversations that were very meaningful that may have happened when I was three as well. Right, so I remember the things that shaped me greatly. So apparently Jade didn't shape me greatly, but I remember the conversations my parents had with me about race when I was three. I remember things that I thought about when I was four. Right, so if I say, well, how old was I? I remember where I was in school. I'd be like, wow, I really wasn't that old. So it depends on what it is, right? <laughs> the story kind of begins when I'm 13, but then I flash back a little bit to earlier days as well. Hi, Monica. One of the uh, quotes mm -hmm. that is in the book that I really like mm -hmm. is, um, the secret is courage. <laughs> and um, for those of us who have a mental illness, mm -hmm. that courage can be as simple as um, getting out of the bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, and acknowledging to ourselves that, hey, wow, I accomplished something this morning. I got out of the bed. Mm -hmm. I drank some water. I walked around. Mm -hmm. So it, um, the courage aspect, I found that um, very helpful, <laughs> reinforcing. Um, when you were younger than 13, and it was at a time, I don't know, it may have been during the summer. Um, something that I remember vividly is standing at the counter fixing breakfast. And you, I'm not going to say you snuck up behind me, but you were behind me before I you heard, and I didn't hear you coming into the kitchen. And you did your favorite. Oh. Yes. Yeah. And oh, you oh. said, Aunt Maxine. You know, we need more hugs around here. That's what we need, more hugs. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you remember that. I, I remember doing that often, so yes, yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. Um, yeah, that's my aunt, everyone. And I did often poke her and tell her we needed more hugs around here. Um, and they did. <laughs> We all did. But um, you bring up the part, I will share where that comes from, actually, the part of the book, because it wasn't like I was sitting around trying to write deep, smart lines, I wish. Um, I was like, let me tell the story. And then I look back and say, oh, that sounds really smart. Who knew? Um, and it's actually near the end of the book. I won't read the whole section. I'll read the one paragraph where I talk about w once I kind of have this diagnosis, what do I do about it and how do I find community? And I try different places and I'm like, nope, that's not going to work. Nope, don't like those people. Right? <laughs> and how I begin to make other friends who also live with depressive conditions. And so this is my reflection on it. 
There is no radar or secret handshake or knowing look that depressives give one another. I'm not even sure most of us are self-aware enough to know our own symptoms embodied in someone else. I can barely see sadness in my own eyes. I don't see it in others. The secret is courage. One random day, someone pushes past a fear of judgment and risks vulnerability. We recognize a kinship. We know each other because we live with the same behemoth. We need each other so that we won't have to battle the dragon alone. We huddle together around a campfire, lit by the breath of the beast that keeps us from leaving the cave on the fairy tale island. That's where it came from. Yes. Hi, how are you? Hi. Thank you so much for writing this book and for being here. This is, I think, a conversation we need to have more and more. I'm, I'm just curious. I actually have two very close girlfriends who both live um, with bipolar disease, and so I've experienced many, many <laughs> interesting situations. But um, I think because both my parents or psychiatric nurses, I'm, I tend to not be afraid of mental illness. I assume we all have some little aspect. That said, you know, um, I think about shows like Ian Van Zandt's show, which I, I tend to watch more and more. Um, and, and a lot of times I get, I'm glad that she's addressing um, a lot of emotional issues and, and sometimes they go into mental health illness, but I get concerned that they're sort of touched on and then there's always this sort of ending, you know, so we've talked and now things are better. And I'm just curious to know how you feel about how the media in general um, deals with mental illness more so, I guess in some ways it's a reality show. And I, I always encourage people to remember that's entertainment, even if it's, you know, a serious topic, at the end of the day it's entertainment. I'm just wondering how you feel about, have you seen any progress in terms of a positive progress in how the media um, deals with the topic of mental illness. Just, just curious. Um, that's a really good point, and I do think about it a lot. Now, mind you, I don't have a TV, so I'll pre preface it with that. But I have Hulu and Netflix, right? So I have a sense of what's out there. And I live in L.A., right, where, where, where the magic is made. And I do often tell people, you know, you don't go to TV for representations of real life, right? <laughs> That's not what TV is for, even if it's called reality TV. Um, and most depressive conditions are incredibly unentertaining, right? Like, depression is not fun or sexy or dramatic. It's like lying in bed not getting anything done, right? <laughs> no one wants to film that. Um, and so I think for the everyday reality of most mental health challenges, it was really not interesting or entertaining, right? Like going from one doctor to another, going from one office to another, trying to figure out how to get the right medicine and get the right bills, and then this not turning out well, and then vomiting, and then getting another medicine. Like, that's not, that's tedious. That's not, no, no one wants to see that on TV. So there aren't that many, I would say, realistic representations of the dailiness, right, of what it live, means to live with a mental health challenge. Um, that being said, they're getting better. Right? There are more, I think, particularly people are talking more about depression. People are talking more about, there are a couple, there are, I think, more movies, a couple TV shows. God, I can't remember what TV show I was watching. I was like, gosh, this show is really weird, but this bipolar character on here, I want to see what they do with her. Right? So, um, and for better or for worse, people watch TV like it's real. 
right? Um, I saw an interview with Shonda Rhimes where she says that, she was talking about Grey's Anatomy and saying that people really do pay attention to the medical side of it. And sometimes they'll even go into a doctor. They'll tell her, oh, I thought I had some symptoms like that and went in, right? So that people really, so she goes, it's really important that we, we not fudge on this because this is, people are taking it seriously. Um, now, sometimes it's disturbing that people take television that seriously, but sometimes it's also good, right? Because it gets our attention. It starts the conversation. It makes us more aware. And so I think for the cases like that, and I think it is making us more aware, um, and there are more realistic portrayals, less condemning portrayals, but more, wow, this person needs some help. How do we get them help? Tends to be what you see more and more as compared to this is the homeless crazy person, <laughs> right? Um, although, of course, many people who are homeless are homeless because they can't get good mental health services. So that wasn't an inaccurate portrayal, but it wasn't a helpful portrayal, right? So I do think it's, I think it's getting better. Um, you know, but TV solves life problems in like 45 minutes, right, or 22 minutes, right, <laughs> which isn't how it really happens. I mean, people on TV are like characters of children are never parenting their kids on TV, right? You're like, where are those kids? I mean, so there's all types of things that aren't really realistic. Um, I hope that with the best of many of the reality shows, every now and again they'll say, we're giving you a referral in your local area, <laughs> Right, for ongoing care. I mean, I remember Dr. Phil used to do that a lot last time I saw Dr. Phil, right? So I find that encouraging. So I hope that also happens, that while they show us the sensational part, that they're giving that referral. That would be, I would say, responsible television. I want to thank you also for this wonderful book. And I'm going to put it on my listing for my students to read. Thank you. And there was something that, that struck me because we were talking about being a child and going through that. As a parent, as a therapist, and watching children. <laughs> and our world is so weird right now. And our children are so involved in technology and they're tuning us out. They're tuning their teachers out and we're not tapping into their real emotions and feelings. And somewhere around on page 44, 45 in your book, <laughs> you talked about being a keeper of secrets wearing a mask. And you used Paul Lawrence's Dunbar's mm -hmm. poem. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very compelling because you said, we wear the mask that grins and lies, it holds our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile. And the mouth with married um, subtleties why should the world be otherwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them see, uh, only see us while we wear the mask. And I think about how many people on a day-to-day -day basis, not just the children, mm -hmm. but all of us wear masks. Right. And so we don't really know how people are really feeling. We're texting people. So you can't tell, you know, from mm -hmm. a text. Mm -hmm. You know, we send all these emojis back and forth. <laughs> but we really don't know if that's how somebody really feels, mm -hmm. you know. And so we send emails. But you can't see the expression on people's faces. So you're talking as a child that your parents didn't recognize, even though you kept telling people, <laughs> you know, I'm feeling this way. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. were denying you, mm -hmm. okay, your emotions. So you were kind of shutting it down. And I just wanted you to kind of address that mass thing that was going on. 
Um, well, part of what I was alluding to with using the Dunbar quote, right, is that the things that we, that I was taught, that so many African Americans are taught as part of our culture and as part of our survival, right, I use those same techniques <laughs> um, in terms of navigating and negotiating my own mental health, right? And just as in the setting that, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar is talking about um, for African Americans, right, and he's 19th century, so quite a while ago, um, it was for safety, right? We, we do this because it's not safe to be the person who's behind the mask, right? Um, and I applaud all things that young people and adults do to be safe if you feel that you are not safe and if indeed you are not safe. Um, so I don't kind of judge myself, right, for wearing the mask, but saying, wow, I, I, I was learning these techniques and so much part of because of my own cultural background, right, my own racial and cultural background. And I was like, let me apply that over here too. Um, and in some ways, I think it was, it was a good thing to do because I didn't feel safe and it wasn't always a safe environment. Um, and for me, the harder thing to do was to recognize when I was safe and didn't have to wear the mask, right? And that all of us need to have some space in which we don't, right? Whether it's your home or your faith community or maybe one or two friendships, not all the friendships, right? But that, you know, and if you stumble upon that space, hold it, cherish it, don't leave it, nurture it, right? I mean, this is one way I ended up in the job I have now is because I realized I could be all of me. And at my job, like, who gets that, right? And so I was like, well, we're taking this job if it's offered. Um, and what a privilege that is, actually. But all of us need to have a space where the mask comes off, right? Um, and that may not be the home. Hopefully it's the home, but it might not be, right? It might be one or two friendships. It might be a faith community. It might be with a relative, uh, if you don't have that space, find it. Look for it, desperately, <laughs> right? Um, so I don't think it's always bad to wear masks, right? That the whole world needs to see, you know, you, our, our bare naked selves, right? There is this kind of something precious about our hearts. Um, but that we cannot always live in that space, right? That's a survival technique that we shouldn't kick into every arena we're in. Oh, people ask me, will I have a study guide? Would you use one if I had one? Okay, so I will work on one. <laughs> okay, I, uh, I see hands here. So I, I thought that your description of um, finding your faith again through dance was very interesting and intriguing. And I wanted to know if you still use dance in that way in your life. Um, the short answer is no. Um, my therapist is like, you need to get back to dancing. I'm like, yes, I do. Once I get some sleep, right? So I have a young child, so that just reordered all my time. <laughs> no, yes, you, as people who have our parents know, right? Um, like we're just getting to sleep into the night and all these different things. And so um, it is very much on the list of things to do, right? But I do, one thing, it was in the book, it got cut from the book um, in the publishing process. Um, what my other kind of, some of my other practices are. I do think it's important to have what I would call spiritual practices, right? 
um, that you use every day, <laughs> something every day. And many of mine are embodied, right? So what's not in the book that I've talked about in other settings is I cycle a lot now, which is a really big deal for me because you know how most kids learn how to ride a bike when they're four or five? I didn't for whatever reason. Um, I didn't learn, I learned how to ride a bike when I was about 15, then I forgot. Yes, you can forget. Um, and then I learned again when I was 19. They would say, just like riding a bike. Not true, not true. Um, I learned again when I was 19, and I forgot again, um, maybe because I didn't learn it as a child. And so I didn't really learn how to ride a bike well until my late 20s. Um, and so I'm always happy I'm just still on the bike when I'm biking, <laughs> um, although I've become a fairly avid cyclist. And so but I think having something that is embodied, right, um, one, endorphins, great, great natural medicine. Um, but um, also, for me, there are many other aspects in which I think it's important to just have a time when our, we're not rationalizing and thinking and sorting through our to-do lists. Not that anyone else here does that. Um, but when we're just you know, letting our bodies lead us, right, and, and be the conduit for our expression. Um, but yeah, I'd love to get back to dance. So maybe when homegirl gets in kindergarten. <laughs> I saw another question up front. Each. All right. Oh, okay. Mike. How are we doing on time? We're good? Okay. Just oh, a, great. You have the last question. Just a brief question. Yes. Since you don't have a study guide, do you have a syllabus online? For no. your classes? Oh, um, well, you know, funny you should, I actually don't teach this. Um, <laughs> this I, in my mind, there are these t sharper bifurcations than my students think that there are. Um, but no, I, I teach my syllabi. Are they online? I don't think they're online. Um, but most of my syllabi are like philosophical theology, liberation theologies. Um, the book lists are, gosh, somewhere you'd have to dig through a, a website to find them. Um, but I can share some of the book. I guess some of the things that I teach. Usually, I kind of if you follow me on Instagram at Rev Dr. Monica, um, I'm often posting pictures of what I'm teaching <laughs> as I'm teaching it. So I'm teaching like this semester. I'm teaching womanist um, contemporary womanist religious scholarship and another course called Becoming a Public Scholar Activist. Um, so more of my teaching is in philosophy, theology, African American religions. Um, than in the intersection of mental health and faith. Um, but I do, in the book, talk about some of the books I've read, some of my favorite books <laughs> that are in here. I think I posted a couple pictures on Instagram of books I've read that really influenced me when writing Bipolar Faith, if that's some of the questions. Um, but now I have two tasks. Let me write them down, right? Study guide. <laughs> syllabus. If you go to my website, if you have a little note card, you'll see it on the back, monicaacoleman.com. You can sign up to my mailing list, and I am going to do some online courses in the spring, so if you're interested in that, because I feel like, you know, you shouldn't have to, like, get an MDiv in California, although you're welcome to, um, <laughs> just to, you know, get some information about faith and freedom and culture. Well, I thank you all so much for coming out. And I want to make sure I get a picture of you for social media. And so my publicist believes you're all here. And... <laughs>
Please grab a bookmark, uh, whether you get a book or not, or if you already have a book. Grab a book here, and I would love to see you, hug you, and sign your book. But don't move yet, don't move yet. Oh, wait, hold on. I want to get in the picture. <laughs> oh, this is great. Can you everyone see? Yeah. Let's give Dr. Coleman a warm welcome. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.